Okay, I am going to try my best at an attempt to finish up church history today. Uh, we have gotten through the 12th century, and uh, we're going to try to breeze through and get to the 13th century to the 20th century. And I'm going to save covering the 21st century church for the last... We're going to wrap the, series, the study up with talking about the 21st century church. Okay, so... Uh, let me run through these review notes real quick. We'll bring us up to the 13th century. Um, let's go to the next one. Um, uh, this is this inter, interspersed into our study on church history. We're talking about this idea that's proposed by many Baptist historians that the true line of churches has always existed all the way back to the apostles and the time of Christ and carried on through and that they were always, it was the line of Baptists throughout history. And they claim these different groups, and we've been sort of expo- you know, uh, uh, looking at these different groups and sort of seeing what they really believed. Uh, let's go to the next one. So we talked about the first century. That's the book of Acts. Second century uh, is the Church of Martyrs and Confessors. Just uh, let's keep going. And um, uh, you have Polycarp there. Uh, third century, Persecution and Heresy, Justin Martyr, uh, Origen, uh, Tertullian. The Montanists, Novatians, we talked about those two groups. Uh, that was Novation. Fourth century um, is the beginning of the state church. You have Constantine established it, the Council of Nicaea in 325, Athanasius, Augustine of Hippo, uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate produced in the uh, fourth century. Fifth century, Augustine, the Pelagian Controversy, St. Patrick. And then the sixth century, the Paulicians, we talked about them. Uh, Justine the first, Benedict, the guy who started the monks, Ninian and Columba, uh, and the Paulicians. Seventh century is the Islamic impact. We talked about Gregory the Great spreading the church, rise of Islam, and sign out of Whitby. The church began to get distracted with trivial things. Eighth century, Boniface uh, comes into and helps spread the gospel to the Germans. And then you have Olopan to Asia. Um, ninth century, power struggle in the church, Cyril and Methodius, missionaries to Russia. The Bogomils, we talked about them. Um, the 10th century, the Dark Ages. Uh, go to the next one. The 11th century, the Great Schism. The church is divided among uh, political things. 12th century, Crusades. We talked about Albigensians, the Waldenses, the Crusades, Peter Abelard, and Peter Lombard. And I think that's where we stopped. All right, so this is where we're at here, the 13th century. Now, I don't have a bunch of pictures on this lesson. Um, like I have been, showing you what these guys look like for two reasons. Number one, I uh, ran out of time. Number two, uh, we're going to be covering a lot more names, so it just really get bogged down with a lot of that. Um, but uh, 13th century, I've titled this century, uh, just gave this sort of Thomas Aquinas. We're going to talk about him in this century. There were groups and individuals in the 13th century who were concerned with refocusing the church on the teaching of Christ and the apostles. Many... Of the mendicant orders, uh, which focused primarily on preaching, pastoral ministry, and poverty, were founded in this century. You had the Order of the Preachers, which were the Dominicans. They were founded by Dominic de Guzman in 1215. You had the Hermits of St. Augustine, uh, or called the Augustinians in 1256. The Order of Mount Carmel, or the Carmelites. The Friars Minor, or the Franciscans in 1209, which was founded by Francis Assisi. Francis began his life as a soldier, later became a Christian, 
and then left, uh, devoted himself to uh, being like a monk, later gave himself to the simplicity and a great concern for preaching, repentance as the way into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, often regarded as one of the church's greatest scholastic thinkers, he produced two major works that are still looked at today, looked at majorly by the reformers, uh, Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, a defense of the Christian faith against paganism, and Summa Theologica, which is translated the sum of theology. It was a detailed analysis of the content of the Christian faith. Why did this stick out during this time? Well, because during this time you had the decline of the church leaders, because these church leaders were so concerned with these political things and uh, gaining more power in the political arena that um, theology and true teaching of the Bible was cast to the side, and that's why you have the church sort of going further, further the wrong direction, and you have these men that stand out in history because they were the ones trying to hold the rope to bring it back. Um, This brings us to the 14th century. The 14th century. I just started this John Wycliffe because he's the main character in the 14th century. Um, I have this down, the church going to Babylon. What is this, the church going to Babylon? Um, In 1303, one of the the papal leaders, uh, Boniface, died. His successor was Benedict XI. It was not long on the papal throne when he too died, and then rumors were circulated that he had been poisoned to get him off the throne to bring in the next pope. So when you watch the History Channel or you watch some kind of dramatic television event or movie that talks about the corruption of the popes and how they were all into the power and all this stuff, that's going on now. That's going on in this century right here in the uh, 14th century. And so um, this was titled by Sinclair Ferguson as the Church of Babylon because the church really just went into this uh, corrupt, corrupt uh, era in, in church history. And uh, among this time, you have this guy from England, John Wycliffe. You've heard of John Wycliffe. I've talked about him before. He's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was a master of Belial College in Oxford, England. His concern led him back to the basic principle that Holy Scripture should, should, uh, the church, should be the church's rule of faith and practice. Novel idea, huh? You know, what's interesting is we're still trying to get that back to today, sort of the purpose for this study. And uh, a lot of people like to look their nose down at church history and say, well, that wasn't the true church, that wasn't true Christians. But let me tell you something, not a whole lot's changed. Not a whole lot has changed. Yeah, we may have different problems, like as far as, you know, the, honestly, you could really do a close examination and see similarities across the board. You don't have church leaders. The Pope isn't running the country, but you have church leaders today trying to get that kind of power. Um, In 1382, Wycliffe translated the Latin Bible into the English of his day so that the people might have the Word of God in their own language. Often cited to answer charges in church courts, meaning they would call him in. The church hierarchy was getting upset at Wycliffe, what he was doing, so they would call him in and basically put him on a mini-trial. Wycliffe refused to be silenced and went on with his work. After his death, the Council of Constantine, what they, they wanted to just go ahead, excommunicate him and put him to death, but they couldn't do it because of his work with 
getting the Word of God to the common man, the people there in the area of England loved him. So they feared that if they went ahead and did that to John Wycliffe, which they wanted to do, then what would happen is you'd have an uprising in England against the church, and they were afraid of that. So when Wycliffe died, this is what they did. They, uh, the Council of Constance, they excommunicated him postmosterously, uh, meaning this. After he was dead, they dug up his bones and excommunicated him and had his remains burned and cast into a river. Oh, we can't do anything with your love, but you're dead now and we hate you. <laughs> Basically was the, the gist. All right, so that brings us to the 15th century. 15th century. Uh, the Renaissance is what I would call this area because this is where the European Renaissance takes form. Um, the scholars began to go behind the received Latin translation the scriptures, uh, of the scriptures to study the original Hebrew and Greek text to discover more accurately what the New Testament itself said about the Christian faith. Because what, what was the Bible of this time? Let's see, we're in the 15th century, so you're in the late 1400s. So for the past thousand years, if somebody wanted to read the Bible, where did they go? The Latin Vulgate. And hardly anybody could read Latin because they were so illiterate. So who did you rely on to read the Bible to you? The, the, the Roman church, the Catholic church. So when you had men stand up like Wycliffe did, they didn't like it. Because what did it do? It started exposing them to what they were doing wrong. Think about that as a parallel today. Preachers that get to the Bible and expound the Bible are ridiculed for not being unifying. Why? Because they are exposing what these other church leaders are doing is not right. It's a big circle. <laughs> it's a big circle. What is the old saying about history? The one thing that we learn from history is that we never learn from history. <laughs> it repeats itself, all right? Uh, so this brings us to this character, John Huss. John Huss. He came from Bohemia, which is modern-day Czech Republic. He was the rector at University of Prague. Uh, Huss soon realized that the teaching of the New Testament was at odds with the teachings of the church of his day. Reading the Bible, he thought, this doesn't match up to what the church is teaching. So what do I go with, the church or the Bible? And Huss made his decision. Once he started teaching this, he was excommunicated and urged to repudiate his writings while on trial. Um... See, Huss was burned at the stake as a supposed enemy of the faith. It was Huss that cried out while he was burning at the stake for God to raise up a dove to uh, set the church straight. And that was almost 100 years before Martin Luther was saved. And if you ever look at any type of picture or something of Martin Luther... There's always a symbol. You go to a bookstore and you see biographies. A lot of times you see the dove. Martin Luther is considered the dove uh, of his time. Um, and then this guy right here, we'll mention two others in this, this century. G, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce the first name. Girolamo Savonarola. Girolamo Savonarola. Um, he was an Italian monk, okay, um, from the Dominican order. Um, he was preaching 
like Huss, he was preaching the Bible and uh, the Gospels and what Jesus was actually said, which did not match up to what the church is teaching. So to silence Savonarola, the Pope offered him promotion to high office, but he declined. He thought the Pope's idea was, okay, here's this guy that's gathering a following. Why don't I just promote him, bring him closer to here, where he's out of the role where he's actually preaching. He'll be doing other things. Savarola said, uh, no. He was arrested, imprisoned, and tortured by the Inquisition. Like Huss before him, Savarola was burned to death for the biblical message that he refused to recant. And then another guy, uh, Gerard Groot. Gerard Groot, he was in the Netherlands. He organized a group called the Brethren of the Common Life. And this was sort of a group during this time that just focused themselves on living the Christian life. Uh, Groot taught them... Uh, what the Bible said and what Jesus taught about just living a simple life. And so these were a group of people that just learned not to be, just, just to have a simple life, not to have want and want and want or gain more power or more footing. And so uh, not a huge mark in history, but it's worth noting. This brings us to the 16th century, the 16th century, which is the Reformation. The Reformation. Of course, Martin Luther Martin Luther's father was a lawyer. He wanted him to become a lawyer, so he sent him to law school. While he was in law school, he was, a couple of things happened. One, he was thrown off his horse, and uh, uh, that sort of uh, shook Martin Luther up to start thinking about his life and death and God. And then another instance where he was walking home one night, a storm started up, and lightning struck right by his feet. He, he fell down on the ground freaked out, cried out, said, God, if you save me from this, if you keep me alive, I will give my life to you. And, uh, well, he didn't die. (laughs) And so Martin Luther did that. Made his father very, very angry. He left law school and went to become a monk. It was there that he became the most dedicated monk of all the monastery that he was was at. Um, He felt such intense guilt over his sin that he would do all kinds of rigid things. I talked about before when I was doing that Reformation lesson about their intense schedule. But uh, one of the things that aggravated the priests there at the monastery was that Luther would come to confession and where most of these... I mean, what are you going to confess at a monastery? Seriously, think about it. What are you going to... In a 16th century monastery, what are you going to confess? And so these monks would come to confession with the priest, and they confess like five minutes or something. I might have got angry at, at uh, brother so-and-so or something like that. Well, Luther would come in there, and he'd spend six hours in confession just overpouring over his guilt, over every cotton-picking little thing that just he could not get over. And finally, the, monk, the, the priest got sick of it. Don't come to us anymore. <laughs> they, got, they got so frustrated over it. He left the monastery... And they put him in a university in Germany. And while he was there, he began to uh, teach his, stu- his teaching the students there in this university uh, the scriptures. And he went through the book of Romans. Brother Steve talked about this the other night in his introduction to the book of Romans. It was when he came across Romans uh, chapter 1 that uh, it, it just jolted him. Now, there's many that believe that he did not get saved until 1519. But it was during this time that he, he could not shake the, untr- the, uh, the truth of the just shall live by faith. Well, that's totally different from beating your body into subjection. 
of penance, paying your dues to get righteousness instead of repentance. And so he started to examine. Of course, there's the whole deal with, um, with selling, uh, uh, I just lost the word, but indulgences to, to pay for your sins. And the church wanted to build this huge basilica in Rome to remodel it and all this stuff, so they needed a bunch of money. So they hired this guy, Johann Tetzel, who was a priest, to go and start raising funds. So this guy started acting like he was just a common uh, used car salesman. All right, and uh, he started going around, and um, he was really good at it. Like, he was just a, just a pitch man. And when he came through Luther's town, it made Luther so mad that this guy was peddling, like a cheap salesman, sins. So Luther then wrote out what's called the 95 Theses, and he posted it on the church in Wittenberg's door. He had no intention of what it would become. But his students saw it, realized what it was, and then took it and they started passing it around and then they started translating it in every language they could and it started going across Europe. And that's sort of what got the Reformation going. Of course, this made him an enemy of the church after this. Uh, The Pope declared a papal bull on him that he should recant or be excommunicated. Luther took his students, his class, outside read the papal bull outside in front of everybody, spectators and all this stuff, and then lit it on fire, (laughs) burned it in front of everybody, basically saying, I don't give a rip about your authority. My authority comes from the Word of God. And uh, they had the big um, debate, and um, then he was, after the debate, uh, it was the church's intentions to uh, kill him in secret. He He was caught before they could get to him by friends. They took him uh, to another place in Germany. He spent two years there. It's believed by many of those that studied Luther's life that was there while he was in hiding there in 1519 that he actually became a regenerate man. He actually was saved there. And uh, Luther translated the Bible into German, which uh, is a huge deal because it was his translation, his, his audacity to translate the Bible into German that then sends William Tyndale, uh, who became a student of Luther's, um, gave him the courage and the boldness to start doing this in English. Um, but I could go on, spend the rest of the time on Luther. Um, John Calvin. John Calvin was a reformer in France. And then uh, Geneva. I, I've told you about John Calvin. John Calvin. Interesting thing about John Calvin. I could sit here, another guy, I could spend the rest of the time talking about John Calvin. But not only that, we tend to focus on Calvin's um, impact for Christianity. Uh, not only theology, worship, church polity, and missions, but also education, government, economics, industry, and social work all bear the imprint of Calvin thought. In fact, the idea of capitalism uh, is credited to John Calvin in the little area of Geneva. He started teaching his people, uh, not from the pulpit, but teaching his people how to uh, do commerce which has been developed into the idea of capitalism. Other reformers for mention, uh, Philip Melanchthon in Germany, who was probably the most well-known student of Luther. Like, he actually trained under Luther. He was an uh, understudy of Luther. Um, Ulrich Zwingli. We're going to talk about Ulrich Zwingli in, in just a little bit, so remember him. Uh, reformer in Switzerland. Heinrich Bollinger in Switzerland. Peter Martyr Vermigli in Italy. John Knox in Scotland. Uh, and Thomas Cranmer in England. Thomas Cranmer is an interesting fellow. Thomas Cranmer 
was a guy who was very influential with bringing Protestant, Protestantism and reforming the church in England. And this is why. Because he had the ear of Henry VIII. King Henry VIII, of course, you know, the guy with the seven wives and beheaded two of them and divorced a couple of them, all this stuff, because he just wanted a male heir. Well, he was actually a very devoted Catholic. And it was the influence of Cramer and the, the, the fact that Henry didn't really like the... He, he liked being the top dog. He didn't like to get his orders from Rome. And those two things really led Henry VIII to move from being... Uh, the Roman church to setting up the church in England, the Protestant church in England. And uh, Cranmer there, but here's what happened. This is sort of, Cranmer was very influential, very, very strong Protestant in his theology. But problems started with Cranmer when Henry died. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself because uh, I could really spend a lot of time here. But I'm going to pause there. I'm going to talk about the crown in a little bit. And we're going to talk, we're going to bring Cranmer back into the picture because Cranmer rec- recants. Cramer recants. Why would you put him on a, a, a note of notability for a reformer? Because I think even though he made a mistake and recanted, when I tell you the full story, you'll understand that he deserves mention. Um, this brings us, 16th century brings us to this group, the Anabaptists. Now, a lot of you probably have never heard of a lot of the groups that I've talked about in this line of Baptist succession, like the Novations, the, the Montanists, and all this stuff. But how many of you have heard of the Anabaptists before? Right, okay, Anabaptists is a little bit more popular than most of the groups that Baptist historians say are the line of Baptists. Why? Because they have the name Baptist in them, right? I guess so. Anabaptist comes from a Greek word of the 4th century that literally means rebaptize. Um, it was coined in the 4th century as a term of scorn. You know, it was not like uh, they loved people that did that. Um, the Anabaptist of the Reformation era. Now, here's the question. Do Baptists, are the Anabaptists forefathers of the Baptists? Are they forefathers of the Baptists? Do we trace our Baptist heritage to the Anabaptists? I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I think. I believe the answer is no. Why? Well, let's look at this. The Anabaptists of the Reformation era, is. it is important to note, did not constitute a united religious body with an agreed confession of faith, meaning they just didn't all agree. All the little groups didn't agree on every little note. They were very divided among something. So much diversity existed among them that it is difficult to generalize about them with any degree of confidence. Most Anabaptists were Trinitarians, but some were Unitarians. What is a Unitarian? It means that you don't believe that God is just one, uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not part of the Godhead. Okay? That's a Unitarian. Some were Unitarians. Um... Most were pacifists, but some were extreme militants. The distinctive doctrines and practices that were held most widely among Anabaptists were rejection of infant baptism in favor of adult believers' baptism. We're good with that, right? Absolutely. Insistence upon the concept of a free, independent church of the patronage and control of the state. Now, we would agree with that. Church Separation of church and state. Church is independent. No problem there and a denial of both Roman, and Catholic, Roman Catholic and the Protestant teachings about salvation and Christian life. Now, I would submit to you that we would agree with the Roman Catholic part, but there's a lot of Protestant teachings that are very biblical. And um, I'm not going to get into the teaching of salvation. I think that's a whole other study. Um, 
But uh, continuing on here. Now, here's where I told you we'd come back to Zwingli. The Anabaptist movement began in 1525, and it started in Zurich, Switzerland. When Anabaptist and Baptist beliefs... I wrote this note down. Oh, no, I skipped one. Those involved in the first endeavor, so the first group of Anabaptists that came about, were led by men who had earlier supported the work of Ulrich Zwingli. Now, here's one of the main crutches with Baptist historians and independent fundamental Baptists to say that Baptists are not Protestants because they go back to the true line of church. If the Anabaptist is your forefathers, and the Anabaptists were started by men who were taught by Ulrich Zwingli, and Ulrich Zwingli is a Protestant, what does that make the Anabaptist? Protestant, okay? Now, I'm not even saying that we are linked to the Anabaptists, but just the Anabaptists themselves are an offshoot of Ulrich Zwingli. When Anabaptist and Baptist beliefs on the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith are compared, it becomes evident that the former, theologically speaking, could not have been the forefathers of the latter. They were heavily, Anabaptists here, heavily influenced by mysticism and extra revelation outside of the Bible, Conclusive evidence shows that mysticism commanded a significant following among the Anabaptist brethren. In 1550, an Anabaptist-slash-Unitarian synod, or council or coming-together meeting, was held in Venice, and about 60 delegates showed up. The body issued a statement of 10 points to clarify its teaching. I want to read you. This is, this is documented history we have. They, these are the ten points that the Anabaptists met at this, this meeting in 1550 to state what they actually believe. Now, listen to these. Christ is not God, but the son of Joseph and Mary, and one filled with divine powers. Problem there? Uh, Mary bore additional children after Jesus. Number three, angels are merely men commissioned by God for special tasks. Problem? Yep. Number four, there is no personal devil. The final resurrection will not include unrighteous. They will remain in the grave forever. Number six, the grave is the only hell. Now, one of these days I'm going to do a study, a short study on the word hell, and you'll probably understand where they came to that conclusion. Okay? But, again, don't agree with that. Um the righteous sleep until the last resur- the righteous sleep until the last resurrection. So when you die, you just sleep. Your soul doesn't go to heaven until the last resurrection at the end times. We don't agree with that. Um, evil souls die with their bodies. The human seed produces both body and soul. And then lastly, the elect are justified by the mercy and love of God. The death of Christ was not an atonement, but a demonstration of divine love. This is the Anabaptists. All right, the Anabaptists of the 16th century. All right, let me say this. One of the major Anabaptist leaders was a guy named Minno Simons. Okay? And uh, they really carried... I say he's a major leader because what he taught really carried on after that of what the group held on to in the years to come after he died off. The Anabaptists of the 16th century were the forefathers of many brethren groups today, of which the Mennonites are the largest and most influential body. Let me say this. After doing study and research on this group, the Anabaptists are not forefathers of Baptists. We did not come from the 
Anabaptists. That would be the Mennonites. The Mennonites come from the Anabaptists. Okay? Um, I'm moving too slow with this. All right, 17th century, the Church of England. The Church of England. Um, during the 17th century, the major play for where the Christi- Christianity took place was in the Church of England. You had uh, the re- reform movements growing in Germany and Switzerland and parts of Europe, but still, major areas of Europe was still dominated by the Roman Church. The church, the Protestant church, really took and shape and grew in England. You had the group of Puritans at this time that rose out because what happened is the Church of England, after it got going, very, very soon after that, already began corruption because it was a state-run church. So then arose a group within the Church of England called the Puritans. And I've talked about this before. The Puritans' goal was to get the Church of England to a purified state, like the Bible teaches, away from what it was going towards, but where it was supposed to start out as. All right, Uh, you had guys like William Perkins, Matthew Henry. How many of you ever heard of Matthew Henry? Very influential today with his commentaries. John Owen, uh, another guy. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, how many of you know who John Bunyan is? Wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, you need to read it. Every Christian should read the Bible and should have read Pilgrim's Progress. All right, uh, John Bunyan, John Flavel, Thomas Watson. The other major player in the 17th century of the church, I have to put this down as the crown. Because to understand the direction of church, you have to understand what was going on with the crown in England during this time. Now, that's where I was going to parallel this. All right, so let's go back to Henry VIII. Henry VIII established the, uh, establishes the Church of England in England, but Henry VIII dies, okay? Henry VIII dies. Remember, he went through all that stuff that we like to look at in history about trying to get a male heir. Well, he finally gets one, and his name's Edward. This is Edward VI, but here's the problem. Edward's just a boy when he dies. So when Henry dies, the throne or the crown falls to Edward. Edward gets the crown. He's just a boy. Here's another problem. He's always a sickly boy. So while he takes the crown and he's the king of England... There is a group of men that come around Edward and they try to help him run the throne while he's this sick little boy growing into adulthood. Um, One of those men is Thomas Cranmer. And they did a fairly good job at doing it. The only problem is they got to a point where they thought, this kid's going to die and he's not going to have an heir. And then our little group is going to be gone. We need to do something. So Edward is probably about 13 at the time. And so they start coming up with this idea to find him a bride and get him married off so he can get an heir before he dies. They really believed this was going to happen. So they are in this mad rush to find a suitor for him. So they find this girl in England that will marry the king. They put the match together. I think Edward meets her one time because of his health, not because he didn't want to. He was just too sick. Meets her one time before the wedding. The wedding is planned two days before the wedding. Edward dies. I think he was 16 or something around there, teenage, teenage years. Edward dies. Now, in the line of succession of the throne, it falls to the next closest relative, right? And age matters. So, when Edward dies, where does the crown go to? It goes to a, the oldest daughter of Henry, whose name was Mary Tudor. Mary Tudor, her mama was the queen of Spain. 
You know, the, the, but when, when Henry divorced her because she couldn't give him a son, she went back to Spain with her daughter and became a Catholic because Spain was Catholic. So when Edward dies, the crown goes to Mary Tudor, who's strong Catholic, to come take the throne in this very Protestant England. Now, here's the thing. Mary hated her father, and she hated England because of she hated her father, and she was Catholic. And this is where the term is coined for her as Bloody Mary, because she starts a persecution among the Protestants. She kills quite a bit of them, okay? Um, and it's here that Thomas Cranmer is martyred. Now, here's what happens with Thomas Cranmer. I told you we'd come back to him. Thomas Cranmer, of course, that little group that was helping Edward is dismantled. Mary comes in. She actually only reigns for six years. She does a lot of damage in six years. Um, while she's there, she starts having these guys that were close to her father that led to England away from Catholicism. They were first on her list. She's, they go in hiding. She calls them to come and have a meeting with her to explain to them, explain to her why they believe what they believe. It's supposed to be a peaceful meeting. So a couple of them convince the others to go, and so all of them go. They get there, not a word is said, and then they get thrown in chains and they get sent to the dungeon with their execution date put on. She brings them out. She says, recant. A lot of them don't recant, but Thomas Cranmer, in fear for his life, recants. Well, this doesn't work for him because Mary thinks he's such a coward that he would recant. Puts him to death anyways. Now, here's what Thomas does. They carry him to the stake to be burned. They do the other ones. They carry Thomas to the stake to be burned. And here's this man who devoted his life to God and trying to influence the crown for the Bible and God who is just walking to the stake to end, for his life to end in total shame because he recanted. So what he does is they tie him to a stake. He shouts out something. I don't have it wrote down, so I can't remember what he said, but it's something of the, the thing that he was just apologizing to God for recanting, and he was in total shame. They start the fire, and Thomas edges down and puts his face down as close to the fire in total shame to make sure that the first thing that burns is his face because he was so upset that he recanted. And uh, that's Thomas Cranmer. Of course, uh, what happens with Mary? Six years later, she dies, very suspicious with it. And there was a uh, priest representative from Spain that was there. Uh, there were rumors that they were a thing because um, two weeks later, he dies too, mysteriously. Um, after that, uh, the next line of the throne for Henry's kids was his other daughter, Elizabeth. Elizabeth be- takes the crown. And she is known as the Virgin Queen because she never marries. She is over the crown for the next 30 to 40 years. And Protestantism grows, but still there's problems. She dies, as because she's a Virgin Queen, she dies without an heir. So what does England do? Well, they start looking for a, uh, anybody that has some of the bloodline of the, of the Tudor bloodline. That's the first, first thing that they look for. Because what you had back then during this time is the royals would marry other royals from other areas. So whenever the countries would come together, it was like a family reunion. They were all cousins to each other. Well, the closest one with the royal blood was James VI of Scotland. His mother was Mary, Queen of Scots. 
who hated John Knox. Well, his mother had died, and he was the boy king of Scotland at the time when Elizabeth dies. In fact, what happened, I know I'm getting so distracted, but this stuff always fascinates me. What happens with Mary is Elizabeth has her come to, uh, to England, and Mary thought she was going to have an audience with the Queen of England to tell her what problems she has over there in Scotland, and she wants her help. But Mary actually, uh, Elizabeth puts her on trial for martyring many men over, many Protestants over in Scotland and puts her to death. That's how Mary's Queen of Scots dies. And so her son James VI is now in Scotland. Whenever they're searching for the closest line of the Tudor blood, it's James VI. So they bring James VI over at 18 years old, and he becomes the next king of England, and he is King James. Which is where he puts a sanction out for the 1611 King James translation of the Bible. And uh, that's the 17th century. All right, now we have the 18th century. This is moving now over to the colonies or, and England, the Great Awakening. Uh, George Whitfield was in England with Charles and, uh, John and Charles Wesley. Um, interesting thing that happened with Whitfield. Whitfield started doing uh, his revival meetings over, well, I say revival meetings. He started his preaching in England. He was an Englishman. He was actually had his own church in England. But the way they did churches in England was that you had, it was almost like they, they, they uh, district off schools today. You lived in this area, you went to this church. But see, Whitfield got so popular with his preaching, people were not going to their area churches to come hear Whitfield preach to where he couldn't get them in his church. So he starts holding open-air meetings in England. This makes the hierarchy of the Church of England very, very upset to where they just kick him out. So the reason Whitfield actually comes over to the colonies and starts preaching in the colonies is because the Church of England kicked him out. They took away his... his, They said, no, we're not having this. They didn't like him because he was doing this. He was upsetting their little apple cart. Of course, you had John and Charles Wesley, their ministries that shook England. And so Whitfield comes over to the colonies, and you had Whitfield in the southern colonies, and then you had Jonathan Edwards in the northern colonies, and you had what is known today as the Great Awakening. Another group that arose during this time were the Moravians, and they were led by a guy named Nicholas von Zinzendorf. This brings us to the 19th century, modern theology and kingdom builders. Um, William Carey is big to mention in this area. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. He went to India in 1793 as a shoe cobbler. By the end of his life, he had supervised translations of the Bible into 36 languages and helped launch the great missionary movement of the 19th century. Missionaries as you know them today are all responsible. Uh, the way we know missions, missions and missionaries today is responsible for William Carey and the way he started things back then. You have Henry Martin. Henry Martin translated the New Testament into Hindustani, Arabic, and Persian. Robert Moffat. Robert Moffat's son-in-law, David Livingston, uh, was the great missionary to Africa. John Patton, Andrew Gordon, Hudson Taylor, the China Inland Mission, Charles Spurgeon during this time, uh, and G. Campbell Morgan was another preacher there in London, uh, on the other side of London. Uh, these two guys had their ministries at the same time in London. Uh, in fact, it was said that uh, Queen Victoria was a regular attender whenever she could to Charles Spurgeon's church because she loved his preaching so much. Um, let me, I wrote this note down. Surely we should pray that God would use us to continue that work of the gospel proclamation in the world today. This brings us to the 20th century. 20th century, the age of wars, the 1900s. Rationalistic 
Rationalistic modernism assailed the trustworthiness of, of Holy Scripture during this time, and the battle of the Bible was on. Another big major group that uh, came out of the ni- early 1900s that was an offshoot of Methodism, I sort of skipped over that. The Wesley brothers were said to, to be so rigid with the way they ran their service that people called them Methodist, and that's why you have the Methodist denomination today. Uh, of course, John Knox and his Reformers is where you get the Presbyterians today. Um, uh, and so Pentecostalism was an offshoot of Methodism in the early 1900s, and that's where that got started. The 20th century was hard on the churches of England and Europe. Let me talk about the Baptist and then wrap this up. Where did the Baptist go? Um, I'm going to finish this up. I'm going to say uh, two quick things about the beginnings of the Baptist. If you are interested, um, if you are interested to know and have me do a lesson or two on Baptists uh, in America and sort of their, their coming ups, um, let me know, and maybe I can do that when I get done with this. But uh, other than that, this is what we're going to talk about the Baptist. The Baptist movement grew out of English Puritanism and Separatism. I talked about the Puritans. You had another group called the Separatists, and from there you had this. the first Baptist movement were the General Baptist. They were the General Baptist. Then after that, about uh, 30 years later, you had another group come out called the Particular Baptist. Now, there's a lot of men involved, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into that, but the General Baptist and Particular Baptist. Even with those two Baptist groups, there were some things that they still they argued amongst themselves and couldn't agree on. And we probably wouldn't line up with every single thing that they did, although we would a lot. But here's the thing. Both of them put out a London Confession. It's called the First London Confession of the Baptist, and then they had a Second London Confession of the Baptist. Interesting thing about it, both of them, from the General Baptist and the Particular Baptist, is they stated without, a, with, uh, without apology that they were not Anabaptists because the Anabaptists were still a group at that time in England. And the General Baptist and the Particular Baptist both said... We are not Anabaptist. We are Protestant. That's what they said. It was very, it's very interesting to find out. These Baptists moved over to the colonies. You had um, the Baptist movement in the colonies was really perpetrated by a guy named Roger Williams. However, Roger Williams is not a great guy. <laughs> Roger Williams was, uh, ended up starting some Baptist churches and is known in, in American history as the guy that started Rhode Island. But then later in his life, he ended up abandoning almost all Christianity himself and going sort of, I don't know, nervous breakdown in his head. Um, he was also known to be very dishonest with the Indians, lied to them a lot. Uh, you have um, the American Baptists rise up and, uh, in, the, in, in America. America grows. You have the American Baptists in the north, and then you have the Southern Baptists in the south. It's from the Southern Baptists that you have, uh, in the Southern Baptists, you have a group of, that comes out called an offshoot of the Southern Baptists that then later completely separated from the Southern Baptists called the Missionary Baptists. In 19, in the early 50, 30, 30, 40s or 50s, there was a guy by the name of J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris, uh, known for pastoring two churches at the same time, he would pastor a church in Texas, then take a train to Michigan and pastor a church in Michigan. Interesting character. Um, but uh, he is really the guy, I don't really know the country, I'd have to do some more research, but um, it was eventually J. Frank Norris that did the split off of the Missionary Baptist. And some people that liked J. Frank Norris, some pastors in the air, around the country that really liked J. Frank Norris, they followed Norris. 
And it was J. Frank Norris that started the independent Baptist churches. And from there, you had the men that followed Norris with the independent Baptist churches. You had uh, men rise up with churches after that, like Lee Robertson, Jack Hiles, and then they had their, the guys that followed them. And so actually what's interesting is probably the most influential and, um, and really the church that was is making the largest churches in the area in the 70s were the independent Baptist churches. Um, and so uh, then that, you know, that's dissipated. We have the church today. So what is the church today? I'm going to save that for the last lesson we do in this study to examine the 21st century church. I will, I'm going to finish up with this, this uh, quote. The record of church history teaches us to hold fast to Christ, assured that He is with us always, even to the end of the world. He will build up His church and kingdom to all generations. A careful examination of Baptist history shows that we were, in fact, Protestants. Now, you have to understand, somebody with my background, that's a cuss word. It really is, Okay. I'm recording this, but there's some people that will listen to this that will be ready to fight by hearing me say that. Baptists are, Baptists are Protestants. Okay? Um, and that's not a bad thing. Okay? There are many great things that we can look at. And the thing you have to understand about church history is that with any history, it's, it's not pretty. But there were men that stood apart and stood for the truth of the Bible. There was a lot of influences. And who are we to say, you know... We have a lot of problems in the church today. The church has been plagued by sin and man through all of history since it started. And for someone to claim that there's a church that is just like the apostles in Acts, I'm sorry. After, you know, they had it right. We've been messing it up ever since. But where do we find how the church is supposed to be? Here. Not by tradition. Not by tradition. Not by what a man thinks. Now, that's what we're going to go next. We're going to start breaking this open and finding out what the church is supposed to be like. Okay, the ecclesia. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You're such a great God, and we thank you for your church. We ask that you'll show us from your word what you uh, intend the church to be. We love you and give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.